Merry Christmas and welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. Today, we have Dr. Roy Gain, a professor of the Hebrew Bible and ancient Near Eastern languages, to give us some cultural and religious context for the religious and political climate during the time of Jesus' birth. I wanted to go back to the first century and see if there are any parallels that we could draw from the time of the birth of Christ and the political and religious turmoil facing us today. I want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. And you can follow me at Kendra Arsenault with the next. But right now, this is AdventNext. Uh, I'm Roy Gain, and I'm professor of Hebrew Bible and Ancient Near Eastern Languages at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary in Andrews University at Bering Springs, Michigan. I have been teaching here for about 26 years, and before that I taught for two years at Pacific Union College from 1992 to 1994, and before that, for a very long time, I was a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, I studied there for two years to get into the uh, master's after having my bachelor's degree already, and then three years for the master's and then about, I think about eight years for the doctorate. So I stayed there for a long time, learned a lot of languages, um, went to Israel to study as an exchange student at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem for two years with all of my classes taught in modern Hebrew, which was a challenge and a tremendous privilege. And um, that was wonderful. My, my wife is a Mesopotamian archeologist. Yeah. So um, she also got her PhD at the University of California at Berkeley in uh, Mesopotamian archeology. span She's the only, in fact, Mesopotamian archeologist in the history of the denomination. Uh, mm -hmm. So she's very special. Um, my teacher was, um, my primary teacher uh, was Jacob Milgram, whose specialty was Leviticus. And he's the greatest scholar in Leviticus in modern times. Um, and then I got to study with a lot of other top scholars, uh, mainly Jewish scholars. So God was very, very kind to me, giving me wonderful opportunities, and it's a tremendous privilege uh, for that. Uh, earlier, before all of that, before PUC, I guess we're working backwards in chronology, I was a student at Pacific Union College, uh, finished there with um, two degrees, one in theology, one in music, piano performance. Haven't had much chance to play lately. But originally, I'm from Australia, and uh, <clears throat> born in Sydney. And we came to this country when I was age almost seven uh, for my father to study here where I'm teaching now at the seminary at Andrews University. Wow, what an interesting legacy that that is, right? Wow, yeah. Wow, so, I mean, and you, you wrote a pretty awesome book. Um, I, I'm probably going to misquote the title, but it's like Old Testament Law for the, for the New Testament Christian. Um, and basically, you're drawing a lot from your, your studies that you have done for your PhD and uh, the studies that you're doing currently. Could you tell us just a little bit about the topic of that book? Yeah, that's Old Testament Law for Christians, uh, original context and enduring application, I think is the subtitle. <laughs> and um, so that book was Baker Academic on 2017. And uh, in that book, I was asked really by the acquisitions editor at Zondervan to explain to Christians how God's law is interesting and it's um, uh, applicable, and there's a lot more that we can learn from it, 
than most people think, because many people think that all we have is the Ten Commandments and the rest are just mosaic and it all doesn't matter. Well, that's very, very inaccurate because we have a tremendous amount that we can learn from the others. And the Ten Commandments are just interwoven with the other laws so that the principles of the Ten Commandments are contained and exemplified in the other laws as well. So we, we can't just dismiss them. They all came from God. Uh, they were for ancient Israel, but in the New Testament, we find Jesus and the apostles like Paul, for example, citing Old Testament laws outside the Ten Commandments mm -hmm. as being very much applicable. For example, Jesus quoted when he was asked, which is the greatest commandment? He cited two laws that are outside the Ten Commandments um, that really are overarching um, principles. One is love for God. That's He cited Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, and the other is love for fellow human beings. He cited, cited Leviticus 19 verse 18. And then, of course, Paul cited in Ephesians 4 and following, and then uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, he cited from the law about uh, incest there that's in Leviticus chapter 18 and 20. So for the New Testament writers, uh, very clearly, those principles of those Old Testament laws, the moral principles, remained. Now, not all of them are ones that we can keep today. And this is what I discuss a lot in my book, is which ones do we keep, can we keep, and should we keep, and which ones can we not keep, but we can learn from. Such as, for example, the ritual laws. We can't keep, for example, the festivals, the yearly festivals. Um, nobody keeps them today, even though nobody can really keep them today because they require sacrifices. And there's no, there's no functioning temple, so that can't continue. Wow. Wow. And, and so I wanted to, to, to talk about today, like, you know, Christmas is just around the corner, and I'm taking this class, or I took this class, of yours where we are looking at, um, you know, the, the community at Qumran, uh, the Essenes, and kind of like this first century cultural climate that's happening in the first century. And I thought it would just be really interesting to look at what was the political state as well as the religious state of the church right before the time that Jesus was about to step on the scene and just helping people paint a picture of what the first century was like and, and the climate that he was walking into. So what was the state of the church right before he came on the scene? It was turbulent. It was um, restless and a, a very, very difficult place just before Jesus came on the scene. Uh, you see, for about 100 years, there had been uh, rulers, the Maccabees, who kicked out Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, we'll back up in history just a little bit and then move forward. Okay, so. The, you remember that the, the Persians ruled over the Jews, and under the Persians, the Jews were allowed to go back after the Babylonian exile and settle. And so they did, and they rebuilt Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the walls, and that was completed in the time of Nehemiah. And then after that, the Greeks conquered the Persians. And there were a number of Greek rulers, the eighth of which was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So there were these four divisions of the Greek empire of Alexander the Great, and this Antiochus Epiphanes ruled one of them, which was the Seleucid branch. And he reigned from 175 to 164 BC. So during his reign, he persecuted the Jews um, because they were a bit out of control. And he wanted them to adopt customs and so on. And he burned a, had a pig burned on the altar and desecrated the temple. And then it had to be reconsecrated. And that reconsecration, that rededication is called Hanukkah. And that's the celebration we have 
uh, the Jews celebrate today as Hanukkah, the reconsecration of the temple. In fact, Jesus celebrated that. It's called, in the Gospel of John, the Feast of Dedication. And so um, after, after that, at, at that time, something really crucial happened uh, for the Jews because they got really sick of this and the, the uh, Jews revolted in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, under Judas Maccabeus and his family, his sons and so on. And they put together a ragtag army and they, they defeated the, the Syrian army. They, they attacked them and they kicked them out. And they established these, the, these Maccabees, the Maccabee family, established a, a dynasty of rulers, Jewish rulers, right there in Jerusalem, which is called the Hasmonean dynasty. So there were a number of these rulers, one after the other. And then what happened was that um, there were two brothers who were vying for the throne, two Hasmonean brothers. And uh, they were fighting back and forth and arguing and so on and so forth. And both of them appealed to Rome to settle the dispute. Now, look, that's like two mice appealing to a cat to settle a dispute. <laughs> what do you think Rome did? Yeah, they took the opportunity. They moved in. And then um, by 63 BC, Pompey the Great, the general, uh, came in and he took over for the Romans. So now the Romans are in charge of, um, of that area. And then Herod the Great, who was an Idumean, that is, he was Edomite descent. The Edomites were longtime enemies of the Jews, but he was, he was Idumean, and he ingratiated himself with the Romans, and then he took over and became a very power. And he was then um, greatly expanding and beautifying and so on the temple. There was already a second temple, but he was greatly expanding it. He did a tremendous amount of building, including filling in the Tyropian uh, Valley and uh, making a huge temple platform that was there in Jesus' day. So the temple that was there in Jesus' day was the temple that Herod built. And you can still see when you go to Jerusalem, as I have lived there, you can go to the so-called Western Wall. They used to call it the Wailing Wall, which is not part of the temple, but it's part of the, um, of the foundation. Well, it's part of the uh, uh, temple platform uh, is what it is. That is the platform over which the temple was part of, on part of that. And there are these huge, there's this wall of these huge stones. Herod, they call them Herodian stones because they were put there by Herod. Uh, gigantic things. So it was a mag monstrous project uh, to build this. In fact, the temple was, was completed just a few years before it was destroyed in 70 AD. So it wasn't completed during the time of Herod. It was ongoing. So that was really a rallying point. It was a, a central religious political point for the, uh, for the Jewish people was that temple. And then there were various groups, various sects. And now we'll get into what we talked about in Dead Sea Scrolls class, because there were several groups who wanted control. And they wanted, uh, several of these wanted to kick the Romans out. Now, some of them were just sort of, a lot of the population was just putting up because that's all they could do. The Romans were brutal and uh, they didn't want to end up on a cross or something like that. And so they were, they were just going along with it. There was the general population that the, the Pharisees called them sinners. I mean, they, they weren't that concerned about the law and so on and so forth. But there were groups such as the Pharisees. They were very prominent political power, according to the book of Jacob Neusner, From Politics to Piety. And so they tried by political means um, already earlier than the Roman takeover. They were trying back in the Hasmonean times 
to get control. And that didn't really work out very well. And so they decided that they could get control by, um, by religious means. They would become religious leaders. Now, that was a bit of a challenge because the real religious leaders were the Sadducees, who were the priestly group. Sadducee comes from Sadokite. Sadok was the priest during the time, the high priest during the time of David, Sadokite. So the Sadducees were really the priestly line, and they were a small elite. They were the ones who controlled the temple, and therefore they controlled the Jewish religion. Mm. So what would the Pharisees do? Because they didn't have access, they didn't have access to the <clears throat> rituals. They couldn't go in there and perform sacrifices the way the priests did. And so, uh, and therefore the people wouldn't really look up to them as leaders. But what the Pharisees did was very clever. And they uh, studied the law and they made up additional rules to protect the law. Their idea was to protect the law because if, if enough people would um, keep the law, then the Messiah would come, okay? And they wanted the Messiah to come. So the Pharisees were convincing the people that they needed to keep extra traditions, which were not written in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. <clears throat> and by keeping these extra rules that were more stringent, they would make sure that they wouldn't violate the rules in the Torah. So they had something that they called Geder al Torah, a fence around the Torah. They lost sight of the fact that the purpose of the Torah, which means instruction, uh, that's God's law, really instruction, is the purpose of it is to protect people. But they got the idea that we should protect or they should protect the law. And so uh, all of these things, they added these traditions that were more stringent that the people had to obey. Now that was very clever because you see, if you're making the rules that other people are bound to obey, you're setting the standards. You have power. You have control. And they gain political power. And they gain wealth. Mm. And these are the things that we see in the New Testament, that they're concerned about power and wealth. Mm. Uh, then I've, or I've already mentioned the Sadducees. There was another group called the Zealots. Mm. And the Zealots, in fact, one of them was one of Jesus' disciples. So Jesus had several of these folks. Uh, and, of course, Judas Iscariot, came from an interesting group. Iscariot means that he was from the tribe of Issachar, which is one of the northern tribes that were exiled. But a lot of the northern people came down and they fled to Judah and Jerusalem during the time of the Assyrian deportation when northern Israel fell and they lived with their descendants in Judah and Jerusalem and they kept their identity as members of those tribes. So Jesus had a really quite a, a mixed group among his disciples. So the zealots, their big thing was they wanted to get rid of the Romans. They really did. In fact, later, um, they held out even after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, where the Romans destroyed the city during the Jewish war. And um, the zealots held out till about 72 AD. They, they went and took Herod's palace up and on the um, on the hill of Masada. Masada is really a very, very um, prominent, how would you describe it? Kind of a bluff. It's a, it's a very high hill with a flat top. <clears throat> and it's very steep and there's a, a long trail up there and it's a great place to defend. So Herod had built this magnificent fortress palace up there and the zealots went and took it and held out against the Romans until 72 AD. So they were really serious and they were fighters. 
And then there was another group, um, and those were described by Josephus as the Essenes. And the Essenes lived down near the Dead Sea, according to Josephus. And then we have some records from also a Roman historian by the name of Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y. Now, Josephus is the main source, and he was a Jewish general who was fighting against the Romans. He was captured by the Romans, ended up going to the side of the Romans, and he became the historian of the Jewish wars and so on. He also wrote a, wrote a book called Antiquities of the Jews because he wanted the Romans to respect the Jews and their traditions. Uh, so Josephus was writing in Greek, and he described in great detail all of these things. Now, that's a little bit past born. There were Pharisees, there were Sadducees. Uh, we know that there were uh, Zealots, and there were Essenes, and there was Herod in charge. Um, the Sadducees were in charge of the temple. One of the big things about the Essenes that they had against the Sadducees was that the Sadducees were no longer maintaining the proper high priestly line. They, um, the position of high priest was extremely powerful, and so wealthy people were purchasing it, including making deals with the Romans. Earlier, they had made deals with the Hasmoneans and so on, and they were uh, not righteous people. They weren't concerned about keeping the laws and so on and so forth. They were concerned about power, and they gained it, and the Essenes regarded the whole system as irretrievably corrupt. It just needed massive reformation. It needed proper uh, rulers, proper high priests, and so on, and and proper dating of the uh, festival occasions, which they regarded were not done according to the right calendar, and so forth. They th thought that the whole system was apostate, and so these Essenes, um, according to most scholars, um, they, they most scholars associate the settlement of Qumran, which is on the west side of the Dead Sea, with the Essenes. And we studied about this a lot in class, about the archaeology of this place. Um, a lot of scholars thought it looks like a fortress or a villa or something like that, and it certainly had a prehistory. But then during the time of, it appears, the Essenes living there, it was a place of a community to live there, apparently with very few, if any, women. And they were uh, studying uh, the, the Torah. They were copying scrolls. And they were um, engaged in a very ascetic, very strict lifestyle with stringent discipline. Uh, we have the Manual of Discipline, which is telling about all of their rules of this community. And what they were trying to do <clears throat> was to set up really a righteous community in um, parallel with, but separate from, the whole system up in Jerusalem. So they didn't offer animal sacrifices because it wasn't the authorized place. But they had a, a lot of other things in place of that. They had prayers and they had um, study and so on. And they very much honored priests who joined them, who were leaders of that community. So we learn a great deal about them. And they had eschatological, that is end time expectations. They expected the Messiah to come and for that there to be a huge big war between the sons of light, of which they believed they belonged to those, and the sons of darkness, which were wicked people. And there were also the Kittim in there, and the Kittim represented the Romans. They had to be careful. They couldn't just say Romans. They had to say something that um, was kind of a code word for Romans. Uh, like when my wife were in the country of Iraq, whenever our dig team, the archaeology team in Iraq, 
wanted to mention Israel, we would say Disneyland. Okay, it's just a code, code name, all right? It's because you may be heard and it could, could get you in trouble. So the sons of light and the sons of darkness would have a big war and the Messiah would win, the sons of light would win and so on. And this is all recorded in um, a major document. Now, in 1947, as we studied, there was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which illuminated all of this. And then there was the, um, uh, the excavation, beginning with Roland DeVoe, of the site of Qumran. And so we can put the texts together with the settlement, together with uh, things that Josephus and Pliny say about this. And it's a very interesting picture of this community, um, revealing that, in their view, the central worship system in Jerusalem was apostate. We have a very interesting document called, it's, it's uh, labeled by scholars 4QMMT. It's from the fourth cave of Qumran, so it's called 4Q. Qumran is with, starting with Q. And then MMT is Miktzat Ma'aseh Torah. So it's a letter about religious practices written by a leader of the Qumran community to a leader, maybe the high priest even, in Jerusalem, uh, talking tactfully about the differences we have in religious practice. So we gained a tremendous wealth of insight on the um, on the, the times and the people. There was a lot of disagreements, a lot of ferment. Kind of like today, really, you know, polarization, we see a lot of stuff like that today. They were really, really, the Jews were really divided. And so that's what Jesus came into, this ferment with the Romans in charge, people wanting to throw out the Romans. And we find several places in the Gospels where um, they wanted to take Jesus and, and make him their deliverer and have him throw out the Romans, especially when he healed a lot of people and he um, fed 5,000 and that kind of thing. I mean, imagine having some, someone like that leading an army. You never have to worry about food for your army. Um, and if they if they get wounded in battle, he can just heal them. I mean, you can't lose. It's just incredible. So when they realized he was the son of God, the Messiah, they wanted to make him do what they set out to do. But of course, they were not paying attention to the other side of the prophecies, which is Isaiah, particularly 53, Psalm 22, showing that the Messiah suffers and dies for his people. Okay, I've just been going on and on. But you no, are... <laughs> this is great. And, and I, I love that we're talking about like just setting the stage and setting the climate because there's so much to be learned from the first century that we can apply to today. You know, we're in this place where we're expecting a second advent. And I think there's, you know, God has given us hindsight um, to be able to draw out lessons uh, that are important for us to, to take with us as we're in this place of expectancy for the second time. So, you know, we have prophecies even today about how is he going to return? Um, but what was some of the expectations and uh, did, did they have kind of a prophetic knowledge of, uh, you know, Christ coming the first time? What did they think that was going to look like? Did he fulfill those expectations? It seems like every community that you describe, the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, uh, the Zealots, that they all had kind of, you know, uh, their own take on maybe prophetic interpretation and what a messianic coming would, would be. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Right. And it's true. We know that the Jewish leaders knew that the Messiah was going to come because when the um, wise men came from the east, these Persians, whatever they were, uh, they came from Iran, apparently. And they cited Micah 5, verse 2, 
which says that he is going to come and be born in Bethlehem, which is exactly why Herod then destroyed the babies that were and the little children, the toddlers for two years age and under in Bethlehem. That's why they were that sure of the prophecies. And they were expecting the Messiah to come really very soon at, at any time. And so um, Herod, of course, was concerned about himself and his dynasty. And we see that in the Gospels. At all costs, he didn't want to lose out on his power. In fact, Herod was a very cruel man. He killed his own wife, and he killed, uh, I think, two of his sons, if I remember correctly. Uh, he was just a very cruel guy. And so the idea of a Messiah coming is very threatening to Herod. That's bad news for him. He doesn't want to hear about that. So we know at least that the, Jew the Jewish leaders knew that much, and they probably could have told him a lot more. If we look in the Old Testament, we find uh, plenty of evidence for a Messiah. In the book of Isaiah, for example, and we're going to study Isaiah um, pretty soon in the Sabbath school lessons in first quarter of 2021. And I wrote that uh, quarterly on Isaiah, so I know a little bit about that one. And in Isaiah, there are a series of messianic prophecies. So starting with Isaiah 7:14, where there's a promise that of, a, of a virgin who would give birth, and very likely there was a young woman, um, no doubt married, who gave birth. And there's a time frame then before he gets to be so old, then the threat of northern Israel and Syria to the north is going to go away. So there had to be really uh, some woman and child then, uh, and the child would be called Emmanuel. However, we don't have a historical record of that. So whatever it was, it apparently was a type or a, a symbol of foreshadowing of what would happen in the New Testament, which identifies it with a Jesus and Mary. Now, Mary was really uh, not just a young woman, she was a virgin. It makes that very clear in the New Testament. So this was a total miracle. Jesus' biological father was um, the Holy Spirit. So that's one, that's one um, interesting and the first of the prophecies that are messianic in Isaiah. But then the subsequent ones, like in Isaiah 9, verse 6, it, call, it says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father. I mean, it, it, it labels him as divine. And then it goes on to say that he's going to uh, increase the house of David. So he's from the Davidic dynasty. He's going to be a Davidic king, but he's divine. And he is um, called everlasting father, uh, which comes from the fact that Jesus really is the creator, the father of the human race, according to John 1 verse 3 and Hebrews 1 verse 2. So then if we move on into Isaiah 11, we find this shoot from the stump of Jesse, which means he's going to be a new David. He's not just from the from the stump of David, he's from the stump of Jesse, meaning he's going to be like David, and he's going to establish justice and peace and all the rest of these things. And then um, later on in the book of Isaiah, we find the four incredible servant poems, where you read the description of those, and it's very clear that the servant of God here is really identified as the Messiah in the earlier passages. And progressively, yes, in chapter 42 of Isaiah, he is going to establish peace. He won't lift up his voice and shout. He's gentle. Uh, he doesn't break a, a, a bruised reed or a dimly burning wick. He doesn't snuff out, you know, which is really like uh, 
like people. There are people that are that are like uh, dimly burning wicks or bruised reeds that could just be you could just you know break them just by by word of discouragement. And he won't do that. He's going to be kind and sensitive, and all of these things. But then, as you move on into Isaiah forty nine and fifty, you find that he is going to be uh, frustrated, like um, I've done all this for, apparently for nothing, and then he's going to be uh, oppressed and and voluntarily so. He gave his back to those who strike. He gave his back. I mean, he's voluntarily accepting abuse. And then we get to the really the holy of holies of of the prophets, which is Isaiah uh, 53 verse 13, 52 verse 13 to 53 verse 12, the fourth servant poem, which we know generally as Isaiah 53. And here we have the um, progressive descent. You know, he's uh, vulnerable like a young plant, and then he is uh, mistreated and ultimately um, killed. But this is for all of us. He bears our sins. He bears our punishment. And as a result of that, then God lifts him up and he has a great reward and he is exalted. Very much like Philippians 2 verses 5 and following. Mm. Have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, become like one of us. And then even to death, even death on a cross. So it comes down, 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 like in the Grand Canyon. And then he comes back up the other side and he's exalted. So we see in these prophecies, also in the Psalms, Psalm 22, it begins, it begins, Eli, Eli, lama azavtani, in Hebrew. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross quoted that, but he said, instead of azavtani, he said sabachthani, because he was translating into Aramaic. Mm -hmm. um, he was, or citing an Aramaic translation, because most of the people spoke the language that Jesus spoke, which was Aramaic. Jesus uh, was a Galilean Aramaic speaker, as were his fishermen disciples. That's why they could recognize his accent. For example, the girl in the courtyard, when Peter was warning him, warming himself while Jesus was being tried, recognized him speaking a different accent of Aramaic. And um, that's why, by the way, the film, The Passion of Christ, the, uh, the, the speech is in Aramaic with subtitles. And um, I was asked by a colleague of mine here, because the newspaper here wanted to, to, to find out, they wanted to do, do a news story when that film came out and see how authentic it was. So they asked some of our New Testament professors to go along and see that film. And then one of the New Testament professors asked me to go because I know Aramaic and I, I teach Aramaic now and I had studied it. So I went along and um, the Aramaic was really well done. It was very well done. So if you saw that film, you've, you've listened to Aramaic, which is related to Hebrew. So Jesus was quoting that psalm, the beginning of the psalm, but he wasn't, um, according to my teacher at Berkeley, Rabbi Jacob Milgram, the rabbi said, Jesus was not uttering a cry of faithless despair. He was, um, because he was just saying the first line referring to the whole psalm. Jesus didn't have the strength to recite the whole psalm, which is quite long. He just referred to the psalm by the first line, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. In other words, think Psalm 22. And it ends up, after, after talking about how dogs have surrounded me, like bulls of Bashan, they have divided my garments among them, and all these things, prophetic, right? About what happened to Jesus. And they scoff at me and so on and so forth. Then at the end, however, he cries out in triumph that I will go through this and what has God done, see? 
And so you need to think of Jesus really referring to that whole psalm. He's clinging to God's promise. That's all he's clinging to. That's all he has. He can't see through the portals of the tomb. Uh, he can't see through death. All he has by faith, he's hanging on to God's word and God's word alone, which is a tremendous example for us because that is going to be our experience at the end is right. to hang on to God's promise with no evidence that there's any going to be any fulfillment. Nothing of our senses is going to tell us that things are going to come out okay. The only thing we hang on to is God's promise. So this was a story of Jesus' life. He lived his life like that. And if we think that his early life, because we don't hear much about it, was, uh, was easy, it was not. His entire life was a struggle because Nazareth was a really bad neighborhood. And you remember when one of um, the disciples who became a disciple, he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right. Um, Jesus grew in a bad neighborhood. So those of us who come from bad neighborhoods, which doesn't include myself, I was really fortunate, um, can, with all of those struggles, all those temptations, he had all the temptations that a, a child and a young person, a teenager, goes through. Um, he had to deal with it. And yet, he, he just clung to God, uh, his father, all the way through and was able to, um, to maintain his purity. Yeah, I, I love this because, you know, it just goes to show, I mean, we see in the New Testament people calling Jesus, you know, son of David, and it's this acknowledgement that this person is fulfilling some type of messianic prophecy, even though they didn't know the extent or the manner in which he was going to come. And as you look at like some of the, the different groups, you know, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots, and their imaginations of what the Messiah could be. And the parallels that there are maybe to today, um, like, what do you see? Like, what, what, what were, you know, how does God subvert our expectations? And, you know, what are some things that we can draw from their experience in the first century to maybe our walk with him in the present? Okay. Well, there was a whole variety. Um, and I mentioned a little bit of that variety. Uh, Herod, for example, didn't want a Messiah. Um, the Sadducees, weren't really interested in a Messiah, particularly either. They weren't, they didn't even believe in an afterlife. And in fact, uh, that showed up, you remember, in uh, some of the discussions with Jesus, where he was asked about the afterlife. You remember, they, they asked him about the, um, a, a woman who's married to seven men uh, by this leveret marriage, the brother-in-law marriage, and then whose is she going to be? And Jesus says, well, in the afterlife, it's just going to be different. It's, it's not going to be a problem. And he was answering Sadducees. And then later, uh, the Apostle Paul was in a trial, I think it may have been the Sanhedrin, even in the book of Acts, and um, he, saw, he, he was an insider. I mean, he had been a Pharisee. He knew an easy way to disrupt things, and so he just referred to the resurrection. And they got to arguing between the Sadducees that didn't believe in resurrection and the Pharisees who did, and they had a big argument, and, and he got out. So the Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in an afterlife. They were really closer to Christian theology uh, than the Sadducees. And so they, um, they would have, uh, yes, they were, they were legalistic, but in, in many ways, including their, um, a lot of their practices, although they were trying to do those for merit and things, their conscientiousness and so on, there were a lot of good things about the Pharisaic movement. And we read those in the Mishnah and the Talmud, because the Pharisaic movement was, was the rabbinic movement, that survived the destruction of Jerusalem. 
it was really the only major group of Judaism that survived. And so they wrote down uh, their oral traditions and they were edited in written form about 200 AD, about 130 years after the destruction of, of the temple. And then there was commentary on that later in about the 600s or so that became the Babylonian Talmud. And there was also a Jerusalem Talmud. So these, and, and then there's commentaries on those. So these are the rabbinic traditions and that is the Judaism of today, except for really small minorities like the, there's a small sect called the Karaites. Um, there are some of those living in Jerusalem and so on. And there are the Falashas, which are from Ethiopia. But otherwise, the Judaism that we know, okay, the synagogues, the temples, whether it's, um, whether it's uh, ultra-Orthodox, Orthodox, conservative, or reform, or reconstructionist, that's all rabbinic, which is Pharisaic Judaism, okay? And there's many, many good things um, about ethics. For example, one of their great leaders was Hillel, an older contemporary of Jesus. Hillel came from Babylonia. He was, because many of the Jews had remained in Babylonia after the Jews, after a lot of the Jews went back to Jerusalem and Judah. And so he was from the diaspora in Babylonia. Then he went back to Judah and became a leader of the Pharisees. And he was a teacher. And one of the things that he taught was, you know, to paraphrase it, it's almost identical to the golden rule that Jesus said, whatsoever you do to others do, whatever you want others to do to you, do to them. I mean, it wasn't phrased, it was phrased in, in the negative, but it was exactly the same idea. So there, there's a lot about repentance in the Talmud and, and so on, and a lot about divine judgment and the afterlife and so on. So the Pharisees would have, but what kind of leader were they looking for um, in terms of their eschatology? don't know a lot about Pharisaic eschatology, uh, except that they were looking for, for Elijah to come. We still know that. In fact, in rabbinic tradition, at uh, some of their festivals, at least one of the festivals that they observe, they, um, they leave an empty chair uh, in the room for Elijah in case, in case Elijah shows up. And they expect the Messiah to show up after Elijah comes. And so they're looking forward to a Messiah coming. And this Messiah is supposed to come to Jerusalem and is supposed to now, if we're looking way ahead, come in through into Jerusalem from the east through the Golden Gate. And right, this means uh, the Golden Gate is on the old city of Jerusalem. And that wall was built by Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, an Ottoman ruler um, in the 1450s. And so... Some, some Jews think that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to come and enter in through that gate, which is all sealed up now. And so that's, um, that's one line. Now, the, the Essenes had a different approach. They really thought there were going to be maybe even two Messiahs, uh, a Levitical Messiah, uh, that is a priestly Messiah, and a political Messiah, a Davidic Messiah. And there was going to be a, this big war, and then there was going to be a time of, of a takeover when everything would be pure, everything would be just fine. Now, the Zealots, I'm not sure about their messianic idea, but they just wanted to drive out the Romans and they wanted to be independent and have freedom. So these, this is some of the diversity. So when Jesus comes, he has to deal with all of this because people are expecting different things from him. And of course, this was what one of Satan's temptations was. Throw yourself down from the temple. Josephus tells us how high it was, and we can figure out that what he means is 
approximately 217 feet high to the pinnacle of the temple, which is where Jesus was when uh, Satan said to throw yourself down. So it would have been a, a tremendous stunt and for him to, to come down there, and people were believing that that's something the Messiah would do. And so what Satan was really trying to get him to do was to proclaim himself, to show himself, to be this miraculous, miracle-working Messiah that all the people were expecting. And also, uh, Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world. Just bypass that suffering servant business. You don't have to die. You don't have to go through all that on behalf of the people. And of course, what happens in that case is, if um, Jesus fulfilled the condition, just bow down to me, Satan said. Just bow down to me. That's all. You see, Christ was was still the creator God. Satan had taken the dominion of human beings, so he was subservient to Christ as God. So Christ was number one, and Satan was number two. And the reason why Christ came as a human being was to take back the dominion for us by becoming a human being, to take it back from Satan. But if Christ, number one, bowed down to Satan, number two, the roles would be reversed. Now Satan would be number one, Christ would be number two. And if Satan is over, the whole world in the unrestricted sense of being number one, it's all over. I mean, we're, we're absolutely doomed and Christ wasn't willing to do that. So, so Satan was very aware of the messianic expectations of the people and was manipulating that. Wow. Wow. And, and as we enter into this season and with all the things that, you know, you know, I, it's always interesting to see how you might read the Bible and make parallels for today, right? And make parallels for your own life. As you see, you know, not only are we a divided Adventist church, we're a divided evangelical church, right? There's so many different denominations just here in America. And I'm sure we as people all have just different expectations and sometimes not even just of the second coming prophetically, but like even just who God is supposed to be in our lives, right? Uh, sometimes we expect things that he hasn't promised, um, or we, we hope for things that he never promised to give us. Right. And so as you're maybe reflecting on kind of the expectations and the subversion of those expectations of the first century, what are some things that you think about or meditate on about, you know, modern day applications or any personal reflections that you have for yourself? Okay, first of all, I'll just mention a detail that strikes me about the Christmas story. Um, and, that, and then I'll, I'll address the rest of your question there. Uh, you mentioned when I read the text, what do I see? Um, I mentioned that I, I wrote that book, Old Testament Law for Christians. My specialty is biblical law, and within that, especially ritual law. And um, so when I'm reading the thing to show, and who's the daddy? Oh. Um, are we really going to believe that? What happens to a young woman in, um, according to biblical law, if she becomes pregnant and they don't know who the father is? Well, there's only one thing that happens to her. She's stoned to death, and that's the end of the baby as well. Okay, so, so according to, to Jewish law, which and the Jews still had the right to carry out the death penalty at that point when Jesus was born. Jesus was born, by the way, in about 4 BC, because we know that he had to be born before zero because Herod the Great died in 4 BC, okay? And Christ was born before Herod died. So about 4 BC, the, the Jews still had the right to carry out capital punishment. And so this was, um, of course, the, the big 
responsibility was on Joseph when he knows his fiance is pregnant and he wasn't the father. He knew that. And, um, and so his, um, what are his options? Well, one option is he could just accuse her publicly and have her stoned to death. That's one. He could, could have done that. Another option would be to short of that, you know, forgive her life, but, um, she would be humiliated and he could call off the engagement. Okay. Which is much more strong than our engagements. This betrothal was really a contract, and it was a contract between families that involved a, a financial price or gift, the bride price. And what that, when that was done, when people were betrothed, that uh, the the man, we don't know how, we don't know if Joseph was a young man or if he was older. He may have had children. We don't know exactly, but the man has exclusive right to the woman's reproductive capability. Uh, exclusive. And if, according to Deuteronomy, um, a betrothed woman has consensual sex, then she is stoned along with the guy. And if she is, um, if, so, if someone, if it's non-consensual, then the other guy is a rapist. She, it's treated just exactly the same as if the marriage were consummated. Okay, so, so Jesus and Mary were in trouble. And that's why I took the angel speaking to Joseph, and Joseph was a righteous man. Um, don't don't worry, Joseph. Everything's okay. Uh, go ahead. And this was um, to save from embarrassment, but also, you know, what if the people had had, had gone over Joseph's head and they just lynched Mary and, and Jesus? So the angel really saved uh, saved their the, the life of Jesus, the unborn Jesus. I mean, that's that's the stakes that are involved. We know that um, according to what we have from, I think it's the Talmud, they tell us that 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the Romans took away the right of the Jews to carry out capital punishment. Mm. Now, this was right during the time of Jesus' ministry, right about the time, or maybe just before the time, when you remember the story of the um, woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. Yeah. And so this was the attempted trap. And this this is another place where I'm reading biblical law and history as well behind this story and you can see that behind this story the trap is perfect jesus um are we going to stoner or not stoner catch 22 either way they've got it if he says don't stoner oh this this guy this rabbi doesn't uh, go along with the law of moses stoner oh then we just deliver him to the romans so jesus to their astonishment took the way out intimidated them by raising their sins uh, and, the, and the need for a righteous witness, and thereby they all dropped things and, and just slunk away because they were afraid of being stoned as well, which they richly deserved. So that's, um, that's a little bit of the legal background behind capital punishment and its relevance for the story of Jesus. Now, in terms of um, our approach today to the, um, to the religious diversity, to the diversity in expectations, um, today, a lot of people are starting more and more to realize that everything is not going to just continue as it has been. The environment is just not going to last. I mean, Greta Thunberg is telling us that, and others are telling us that, uh, that unless something drastic happens, then the human race is going to be doomed by environmental catastrophe, if nothing else. Then we have nuclear capability, which, of course, we've been living with, I mean, even before I was born. We had that. And, and when I was a kid in school in this country, we would sometimes have uh, drills and, and learn about 
how to survive in a nuclear shelter and all this kind of stuff. I mean, we're still living with that kind of thing. So people are concerned. And now we have this coronavirus. And there's um, a danger of other severe viruses that could come and, and people die and, and all the rest of it. So people are thinking, what comes next? And some people are thinking, what about after I die? And this is a marvelous opportunity for us to share with them the biblical message. We just don't have to be afraid. God has everything under control. Yes, things are going to get worse. They're going to get much worse. But then, in the end, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. For those who have faith in uh, the Messiah, Jesus, uh, it's going to come out all right. Now, one, one thing, though, that we realize from the misapprehensions that many people have had about Jesus in his day, and they wanted him to do certain things, right? We have to realize that Jesus coming may not be just exactly uh, the way we expect. Yes, the Bible says in Luke, he's, his coming is going to be, he said, as the lightning shines from the east to the west, everyone's going to see it. No secret rapture. And there are a number of other things that we learn about his coming and things that happened before his coming. Uh, the end of Daniel chapter 11 tells us about a, a huge conflict that happens just before he comes and the resurrection occurs. We find the things in Revelation and Daniel, elsewhere in Daniel, and so on. And, and yes, but precisely the details and exactly the timing, you know, the timing is tricky because it's been going a long, a long time after the early Adventists were expecting him to come. It's over 170 years since that time. And so um, what is he waiting for? What's he waiting for? And that really boils down to the question. And that's where the, the altar call to each individual comes in. Where do we stand with regard to the Messiah's coming? Um, Jesus said, when the Messiah comes, when the Son of Man comes, he said, will he find faith on the earth? And it's very sad for Jesus to have to even ask that. Where is faith. The ancient Israelites came up to the borders of the promised land at Kadesh Barnea, and God said, go in, it's yours, take the land. And they were encouraged by their leaders to do it. But they didn't do it. The spies came back, said it's, it's dangerous in there. There's uh, walled cities and fortresses and human sources and, you know, giants. And, and so they were terrified and no, they wouldn't do it. They lacked faith. So then they had to wait 40 years, come back the next generation, and they had to come in a more difficult way. It became more difficult. They had to come in all the way around Edom and enter from the east instead of from the south, which was the more direct route. Now, look, it, it appears that every generation or so, we've been coming up to the borders of the promised land and turning away from it. Not enough faith to finish the work. When is Jesus going to come? He tells us in Matthew 24. He says, this gospel of the kingdom is preached to all the world as a witness to all nations. Then the end will come. So it's a matter of finishing the work by this powerful, tough love that is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which the apostles had in Acts that made them unafraid of anyone because of their love for people. They uh, People could ridicule them, spit at them, uh, throw stones at them, crucify them upside down, French fry them in boiling oil like they did with uh, John by tradition. and the apostles would still go on loving them. And there was nothing that people could do about it. And it turned the world upside down. So when God's people have that kind of faith in God to give them that kind of love and that kind of dedication, and when we want to go home badly enough, uh, away from all of our material things, then the end will come. 
Now, when we have something like the coronavirus, I, you know, I, I hesitate to say, well, you know, it's a judgment from God. It, it, it might be. Uh, but what it does do, whatever, we can, we can wake up and say, maybe life here isn't quite as comfortable as I thought it was. Maybe it would be good to go somewhere else. But we know that the early Adventists back in the 1840s and so on were, um, they were, a lot of them were poor, a lot of them suffering, a lot of them having sickness. And they just didn't cherish this world so much. Enough is enough. I'd like to go home. Well, look, we are rich and increased in goods like the Church of Laodicea and Revelation. And um, maybe we're just too comfortable here. So perhaps a little bit of discomfort. Um, I wouldn't want to wish it on my worst enemy, uh, this, this kind of COVID. And I, we've had, we know people who have died from it and who've suffered terribly and, and so on. And I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But given that it's here, maybe we can learn something from it, and that is that there is a better land. Uh, there is the ultimate physician. Jesus wants to take away our mortality and, and death and disease with it and to give us freedom from suffering and tears so that all of this will be no more to give us the new heaven and the new earth and uh, to be our ultimate Messiah and our Emmanuel. You remember, that's where Isaiah started with this um messianic promise Emmanuel and that's what it says in Revelation 21 that God will be with his people with his people God is with us and that is the best thing of all because he is the creator the sustainer of life and the redeemer who's shown his love lavished his love upon us above all by giving us Jesus and imagine imagine if you're a parent you think about God the father as as a parent in a sense and really the Holy Spirit was his biological father and and giving your child um, over to such an environment where it's so dangerous. I mean, there's Herods out there. There's, there's all kinds of bad people there's, uh, who want to get rid of him. And yet this tiny, vulnerable baby in Bethlehem. And now that we've heard a little about the history, it's a very, very dangerous time in history. It was an opportune time for him to come because the... Um, such a large, vast space of territory and people were under the Roman Empire so they could move freely. And when the gospel got out, it could just move around uh, very, very quickly and go viral. And so that was a good thing. He came, he chose when to come. Uh, but at the same time, he came at an extremely dangerous time for him. And yet God allowed him to come into this and he took all that risk uh, for us. That's showing God's love. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I really do. And I appreciate you kind of giving us some context and background, some information that maybe people didn't know about the first century and the first coming of Christ. And I just want to leave you with any last words that you want to say to our audience as we kind of just prepare our hearts and prepare our minds uh, just to be in maybe a more thoughtful place this season. Right. Well, I would say as you look at nativity scenes, we see those outside on lawns and we see those in people's houses and, and everything. And they're all so sweet smelling and clean and beautiful. And um, and it wasn't like that. Um, it was a, a smelly uh, barn kind of a, a place. And um, here was a very young teenage mother. Mary was, you know, they married very young in those days, 14, 15. We don't know how old she was. She might've been 14. For all we know, she might have been 18. We don't know. Probably not older than that. And here she is, a long way. She's had to make a long trip, uh, nine months pregnant, and in very difficult circumstances, getting turned away. Imagine a nine months old, a pregnant woman showing up at the door 
and nobody has a place for them. Imagine that. And it's really sort of paradigmatic of a lot of human history where Jesus shows up. There's Jesus. No place for him. Everything's full. Sorry, Jesus. Can't let you in. And that's really tragic. But let's let's consider the um, the, the story for all of its uh, pathos and its um, for for what God gave and what He put up with. I mean, coming from pure, sanitized, beautiful heaven down to this to this very very earthy <laughs> environment with smell of manure all around, and his mother just doing the best, and, and his father, uh, human father that is, just doing the best they could to just survive in that circumstance. So cut through all the fat of all of that, um, the, the beautiful stuff and the tinsel and the, uh, the later myths of Christmas. Jesus undoubtedly wasn't born December 25. Uh, that's later myth. And of course, given that it's a time to celebrate Jesus, let's celebrate him, okay? Um, but, but remembering that it, it really wasn't the way that it's often depicted, that it's showing really God's love in a much more powerful way than that it is however um constricted however much we are rejected by people and and anything he can always reach us wherever we are he's going to come and show up at our door are we going to let him in thanks so much for tuning in if you're not already following us on facebook instagram or youtube be sure to find us at the handle at add that next and you can follow me at kendra snow with an x do you have a subject you'd like me to cover Subscribe and leave a comment below. Happy New Year and see you next week.